Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. I'd encourage you to take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I remind you, as we're working through this letter, that one of the privileges of going through First and then 2 Thessalonians is watching the way this young church is developing over time. You'll remember that back in 1 Thessalonians, Paul actually talked about the second coming of Christ and answered several questions. What will happen to believers who die before the Lord comes? How should we prepare for the Lord's coming since we don't know when it's going to be? But when Paul received his update from the Thessalonian church, it becomes apparent that his answers had not solved the questions about the second coming of the Lord. In fact, there's even more questions or even more concerning developments in their thinking as a young church. And so Paul is going to take substantial time in this chapter and the next to further develop the theology of the second coming of Christ. And as he does so, Paul's going to give us an outline, if you will, of the events of Christ's coming, but he's also going to increase our sense of assurance and our joy that awaits us while we wait for Christ's return. So if you would read with me 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself, to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. God, we thank you for this word. It brings up things that are puzzling to us, perhaps, but things that you have given us, and we pray that you would apply them to our hearts and our minds now to assure us of our joy and our hope in Christ. We pray this for his sake. Amen. You know, among the proverbs for wise living in life, one of the most common that we share with one another has to be think ahead. Think about what's coming and act now in light of what 
you expect to be coming. And I realize that humans are divided between those who think that spontaneity is the spice of life and those who find their fulfillment just in thinking, planning, and budgeting. But I think we all recognize the wisdom and benefit from knowing what's ahead so that we can live well now. I know for us, when my family travels down to Williamsburg, Virginia, it pays to know what's coming and to look at the traffic report on I-95 south of D.C. Because we should adjust our right now, our route now based on what's ahead. Doing so will save us potentially hours in traffic and help us avoid the undoubted pitfalls to our sanctification that come from D.C. traffic. Others may think about finances. What's our five and ten year plan? We adjust how we spend our money now based on what's ahead. Maybe some of us are saying, you know, if I could only know what's coming, will schools be happening in person? Will masks be required? When is a vaccine coming out? When's this COVID thing going to go away? That would help me make decisions now. Well, these are all ways we think about this, but in a similar and far more significant sense, this passage is reminding us that knowing the end of the story of history that God has revealed will guide us to live according to truth and will increase our hope and joy for today as we live now in light of what's to come. In our passage, Paul begins by summarizing the bad theology that was making its rounds in the Thessalonian church. He says that the Thessalonian Christians have been shaken or worried because some were teaching that Jesus had already come. Jesus returned, the thing we're all looking ahead to. Some were saying, oh, that already happened. And so the Thessalonian Christians were concerned. And Paul says he has no idea how this idea got started. He doesn't know if it was a false spirit or a rumor that someone had started or if maybe someone even misunderstood something he had written in his previous letter. But whatever its source, Paul responds in this section by squelching this bad theology in its tracks. And he proceeds to say in verse 3 with very clear words, let no one deceive you. This is not true. But then Paul will spend verses 3 through 12 explaining why it's not true. And he does so by first laying out a schedule of events, if you will. If you've ever been to a a conference, you know there's a schedule of events. And Paul is describing this sort of schedule of events for Christ's return. And then he describes the battle, the spiritual battle that is happening behind the scenes of history. So we want to look at both of those things, but let's start with this schedule of events in verses 3 through 8. You'll notice that Paul says in verse 3 that the end will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now the words for rebellion here, it's a a word that's used regularly for a a revolt, uh, a coup. But this word's used in religious context and in Jewish writings to talk about a falling away or an apostasy or a rebellion that's happening in the community of God's people that then turn away and reject their faith. So this isn't talking about a predominance of non-Christians existing in the world. It's talking about a falling away among the church or among the visible community of God's people in the last times. Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy 4. He says, the Spirit has expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons and the insincerity of liars. 
And while this kind of falling away, people rejecting their faith or turning away from Christ happens throughout history, Paul is making it clear that he's talking about a a widespread falling away that will happen throughout the global church in the last days. And to Paul's point, he says, this has not yet happened. And so we know that Christ has not yet come. Then there's this great opponent opponent of God who will appear. Paul calls him, he mentions at least four different titles or marks of this man here. He calls him the man of lawlessness. He will be a man who will oppose God and his law in favor of wickedness. He calls him a son of destruction, meaning that his inheritance or his end is ruin and destruction. And he says that, that he will set himself up taking his, his, his seat in the temple of God, even proclaiming himself to be God as he opposes the one true God. I think it's important to, to note here this reference to taking the seat in the temple of God is not talking about a literal seating in a physical temple. We know that because Paul uses the word temple all throughout his writings, and he never uses it in the sense of a physical temple. It's always referring either to an individual Christian or to the church as a whole. And so we see what Paul is saying here is that to take your seat in God's temple is to proclaim yourself to be God himself. It's to to set himself up perhaps as a leader in the church, uh, at least in the church community, and drawing the worship that would be due to God alone to himself. Maybe Paul's language here would call to mind some terms that you remember from reading scripture because he's picking up on much that's said in Daniel's prophecies, particularly in Daniel chapter 11, where Daniel describes a king who will exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and even speak against the god of gods, who will profane the temple, set up the abomination that makes desolate, and will seduce many of God's people to violate the covenant. You see the similarities between Daniel's prophecy and 2 Thessalonians. And we know that Daniel's prophecy referred directly to a king who came in history, Antiochus Epiphanes, who came in 169 BC. He encouraged Jews to deny God's law. He sacrificed pigs in the temple and set up a statue of Zeus in the temple. He proclaimed himself to be God and fulfilled Daniel's words. But Daniel tells us in his prophecy that while Antiochus fulfilled the prophecies, His prophecy also refers to the time of the end. And Paul picks up this language saying, yes, Daniel's prophecy was initially fulfilled in Israel in 169 BC by Antiochus Epiphany, but Antiochus is just a small picture of what's going to happen climactically and globally in the last days. Now, of course, this leaves us some questions, doesn't it? We say, okay, so the rebellion's going to happen, a man of lawlessness is going to come, but who exactly is this guy? What exactly is he going to do? Is it someone we would be able to recognize in history? And we know it's certainly a man who will come in history, but beyond that, Paul doesn't give us more details. Our curiosity has peaked, but God has given us what we need to know. And that is that in the end, A man will arise climactically opposing God who will turn many in the church away from God. But until that happens, we haven't missed Christ's return. Now, as Paul moves into verse 6, I want you to look at verse 6, he drops a maddeningly cryptic statement on us. He says, and you know what's restraining this guy now. And we want to say, "Um, Paul, actually we don't. 
The Thessalonians know, but we don't know, and we'd really like to know. But Paul doesn't uh, give us more details. Again, he, he gives us what we need to know in this passage. But I think if we could summarize uh, maybe what we've said, uh, one commentator lists eight different possibilities of what could be restraining this man of lawlessness now. And many of them are, are far-fetched, I think, but um, perhaps we could take a guess at some of the chief candidates. One is that the, the power of the preaching of the gospel is restraining the man of lawlessness. In Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 10, both would lend credence to that, where they say that the preaching of the gospel leads to the falling of Satan and will continue until the last days. Others suggest that it's perhaps an angel acting with God's authority that's holding back this man of lawlessness. And Daniel chapter 10 and Revelation chapter 20 seem to lend some credence to this idea. We don't know for sure, but I think what we can say is that it's God's power restraining this for now, whether that's through the preaching of the gospel or through an angelic power or, or something else that we aren't clear on. But again, the Spirit has given us what we need to know. Right now, God is restraining this climactic opposition until the last days. But I want us to notice these verses 6 and 7 because Paul gives us a very important comment for us as the church right now. And I think we can summarize verses 6 and 7 this way. The mystery of lawlessness, and we've talked about the man of lawlessness, the mystery of lawlessness is referring to the work of lawlessness that was foretold by the prophets that will culminate on the last day. He says this, this work of lawlessness is actually already happening now. It's already at work now. Now, it's restrained. It's not there in its climactic form that it will be revealed. But lawlessness is at work. In other words, even now, we should expect lawless men, men and women who oppose God, false teachers who will deceive some. We should expect to see some falling away from Christ now. This is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Do you remember when the disciples said, Jesus, what are the signs that the end times are coming? And Jesus responded, Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And there will be wars and rumors of war, famines and earthquakes, but the end is not yet. In other words, those are the things that will happen all throughout Christ's first to second coming, all throughout that time of history. They are not a sign of the end times. Yet, the pattern of spiritual warfare you should expect now is that these things will be happening even though we know that a climactic period of opposition will come at the last day. I think we could say it this way, the spiritual battles raging today, the difference between them and the end times, is not a difference in kind, but a difference in degree. What will happen will happen climactically then. And I think there are two very important things the church needs to hear from this right now. The first thing is this, every single generation in church history has thought that the end times were upon them. Augustine thought that the end times were upon him when Rome was sacked by the Visigoths. Luther thought the end times were upon him when he saw the wickedness of the Pope. Jonathan Edwards thought the end times were upon him in the 18th century. When the world wars hit, Christians thought the end times were upon them. But I think we can say that given the history of worldwide wickedness and bubonic plague and these difficult things, we should be very cautious as the church from proclaiming that the coronavirus or threats to American stability are signs of the end times. They are just part of the pattern of what we expect between Christ's first and second coming. 
So that's the first thing we should take as a church. But second, maybe even more importantly for us personally, we are reminded of the pattern we should expect in life. This calls us to the reality of the battle that's waging for your soul and my soul on a daily basis. Today, there are temptations, sufferings, disappointments, griefs, lawlessness, false teachers, the need to stand for Christ. All of that work of lawlessness is happening now and it demands our souls to be ready for that battle. What's the first thing I wonder that you think of when you wake up in the morning? Probably either the snooze button or coffee. But what should be the first things that we think of in the morning? The first thing we should think in the morning is, today there is a battle raging over my soul. And the work of lawlessness and deception is out there. Griefs and temptation are there to wage war against me. And so there is a call to us here to be ready to cling to the cross of Jesus with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, keeping our eyes fixed on our one hope each day. And we could add, not only is this going to happen now, but remember what we're experiencing now is but a prelude to the full-scale deception and attack that will come on the church in the last days. And so we're called now to gird up our minds, to gird up our strength and to strengthen our faith so that we will be ready to continue steadfast in the name of Jesus. Of course, in the face of this challenge, we're also given a great hope because this passage reminds us or scripture reminds us that God will hold on to his people. You remember where Jesus says that no one is able to snatch his people out of our father's hand. So we wake up each morning knowing that because we are in Christ, Satan's power may smack us around a bit. In fact, it may put a target on our back sometimes because we belong to Christ. But Satan has no real power to threaten the souls of those who are committed to Christ by faith. And so we wake up expecting this battle, but we wake up strengthened in Jesus Christ. Well, the timeline of events ends in verse 8. We see that one day the man of lawlessness will be revealed in all his power to lead this rebellion. But on that day, Jesus will also be revealed. And he will kill this man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth. The power of God destroys the man of lawlessness who rises to lead this rebellion. What a stunning display of glorious power, of authority, of judgment that belongs to Jesus to bring this man's appearance to nothing when Jesus himself shows up. That's hope and a good ending to the story. So we can offer this timeline then. What is the timeline of of the end times? Lawlessness is at work now until the last days when the climactic man of lawlessness will appear and the rebellion and falling away will occur, after which Christ will return to kill this Antichrist, to judge all mankind, bring eternal punishment to those who have refused the gospel, and yet to gather to himself in glory all of his people in eternal life who have put their faith in Jesus. Well, let's look briefly at verses 9 through 12, because here we just see Paul comment on the spiritual battle that's happening behind the scenes of these events. He says these events are going to happen throughout history, but behind them both God and Satan are at work. You see in verse 9, we hear that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, so that this man will come with power and false signs and wonders and with wicked deception. In other words, though this man of lawlessness will be a man, 
He will be propelled by the work of Satan himself to wreak havoc in the world and on the community of God's people. And Satan's purposes are deception and falsehood that he might destroy the church of God. But despite Satan's power and purpose, I want you to notice very carefully that Satan is able to deceive. Who does it say here? He is able to deceive those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth. In other words, Satan's power does not put God's own people at his mercy. Rather, it is those who do not love the truth who are susceptible to Satan's attacks and deceptions. Again, we see this pattern. Those who are Christ are secure in him, even as Satan's work brings deception to those who have not loved the truth. But Paul immediately adds in verse 11 that God is also at work in this process because in Scripture we remember that spiritual warfare is not a battle between two equal forces, light and dark. It's a battle between a sovereign God who always accomplishes his purposes and Satan who seeks to oppose him but can do absolutely nothing without his permission. And so we find that God also is at work. He is sending a strong delusion so that those who have refused the truth will be deceived and condemned. This is the process that Romans 1 spells out for us, that those who reject God and his truth begin to experience judgment in this life when God hands them over to the deceptions and falsehoods that they have believed. Maybe you think of the story of King Ahab. Do you remember Ahab and Jezebel in the Old Testament? Ahab had led wickedness in Israel. He had led many Jews to reject God, to worship idols. And finally, God sent a lying prophet to deceive Ahab and lead him into battle into his death. God, based on his wickedness, sent a lie and a deception to confirm his judgment even in this life. And that's the pattern, I think, that Paul's describing here, taking place on a grander scale on the final days. And so we can say that while God in his mercy certainly saves some even from the clutches of sin, and that is our hope, God also in his sovereignty commits others who have loved unrighteousness and refused the truth to begin experiencing judgment even now by handing them over to the falsehood they have loved. This is the spiritual battle taking place behind these events in the last days. Well, we started out by saying that knowing what's ahead helps us live now. So how does knowing what's ahead help us today? If I could encourage us, I believe that this passage gives us two C's to help us in our life now. First, this passage grounds our confidence in the Lord in all things. This passage drips through and through, line by line, with the absolute sovereignty of God who is in control of all things. God set this schedule of events. God is bringing things to pass according to the schedule he has laid out. God is guaranteeing that this will work out according to his plan. God's power is such that Christ can defeat this man of lawlessness with a mere breath. If every event is under the sovereign hand of God, And brothers and sisters, we do not need to fear. We are in his hands, and every minute is unfolding according to his schedule of events. You know, so much of our fear that overwhelms us, so much of our anxiety comes because we're not in control. We recognize that we're not in control of our own lives. We're not in control of what's happening in our country. We're not in control of the lives of our kids or our grandkids. And so we panic 
We begin to worry. We begin to think, well, what if a car crash tomorrow ends life as I know it? I mean, what if a pandemic hits? And we begin to worry and fret. And if we are looking for some assurance, if we are looking for some assurance to end our anxiety, may I remind us that my decisions and actions, no matter how responsible they are, are no assurance that everything will turn out the way I want it to? Can I remind us that medicine and government and other things we might look to are no assurance against our worst fears? We're going to only be reminded day after day that those things can give us no assurance. So what can? It's the truth of this passage that God is in complete control. And not only is he in complete control, but he's already told us how things end. See, brothers and sisters, the reason we don't have to worry is because we have a sovereign God who's already told us the end of the story. It ends with Christ defeating every wickedness with the breath of his mouth, with Christ returning to bring all his saints to dwell with him in glory forever. And so we can join the psalmist who says the nations can rage against God's people and promote wickedness all they want, but God says, he who sits in heaven laughs, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion and my holy hill. And if I could take this moment, here's where I have to thank you for the privilege of preaching God's word and studying it throughout the week. Because if I'm honest with you, this, mor- this past week I woke up several mornings feeling discouraged. Feeling discouraged by the reality of COVID. Missing the full worship services of 1,100 people. Missing the rhythm of ministry where so many in our church are ministering effectively to others. I'm discouraged by the way that Satan seems to be effectively attacking several churches in our presbytery and grievous results. I'm discouraged by the uncertainty of decisions and what's ahead, and of course I'm discouraged by my own sin. But then I get to come to work and study the truths of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I'm reminded that God is perfectly sovereign. He is reigning and bringing his purposes about with the ease of the breath of his mouth while we wait until the perfect time when Christ will come again to bring us into glory with him. And that's good theology. And good theology can comfort our hearts. And we're reminded of that in a great Peanuts cartoon. Remember Snoopy and his gang. And one of them, Linus and Lucy, are standing by the window watching it rain outside. And Lucy says, boy, look at it rain. What if it floods our entire world? And Linus says, oh, it won't. God promised that in Genesis chapter 9. And he gave us the rainbow as a sign of his promise. And Lucy says, Oh, you've taken such a load off my mind. And Linus says, good theology has a way of doing that. I wonder if we would let the good theology of 2 Thessalonians 2 take a load off our minds of the cares and the worries and the anxieties and give us confidence in Christ. Well, that's the first thing, confidence. Secondly, this passage issues a call to us. Look at verses 10 through 12. The dividing line between judgment and salvation is drawn between those who reject the truth and delight in unrighteousness and those who love the truth and take pleasure in righteousness and so will be saved. And I want you to listen to those words, love, delight. I think the call here is a reminder that God has not called us to drudgery. 
He has called us to love the truth and take pleasure in righteousness. Like the psalmist when he says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We're called to obey God's law, yes. We're called to submit to God, yes. But God's call is also something of astounding beauty and goodness. It's a call to the loveliness and the deep goodness of life in Christ. A life of trust in Him that sets all truth before our eyes. A life that calls us to live life the way God intends it to be lived. A life that calls us to the promises of eternity and perfect and pure joy and gladness with Him forever. Of course, today there's a spiritual battle raging around us. In this world, those who love truth and righteousness may get affliction. They may even be come to the point of having their possessions robbed or being sawn in two, the author of Hebrews says. Yes, there is spiritual warfare now, but But the mercy of God continues to hold out to us this truth and righteousness in all of its beauty and call us to have a hunger for his word and his truth and a hunger and a desire and a joy in his righteousness that our souls might be saved. That's our call this morning. And so as we come to this, the end of this passage, what we've said comes back to the same basis summons that we've come to week after week. This call comes in and through Jesus Christ. And so as we look to the end, to the return of Christ, the question we face yet again is where do you and I stand with Jesus Christ? He has come once to die for our sins and rise again for our life. But he will come again. That's a guarantee. Have we loved and believed the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, died in our place and risen again? If we have not, then deception and delusion and being handed over to condemnation is the end of that road. But to all of us has been held out the gospel. We have a great God and a great hope that's been spelled out again for us this morning that can shape in our hearts confidence in him, confidence in his power and sovereignty, and a joyful love for his truth and righteousness. And that's hope worth believing in. Let's pray. God, How we thank you for this passage. You've given us details that intrigue us. There are some answers to those details we may not have, but we have the answers we need. And that is the reality of our sovereign God who is at work even now preparing judgment on wickedness, but offering salvation to all who come in Christ. What a truth, what a joy, what righteousness you've offered to us. May we delight in it as we expect and look ahead to the return of our Savior. Strengthen us in the spiritual battles now. Strengthen us in whatever may come against us by Satan's efforts this week, that we might be strong and steadfast in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in your name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m., To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.